Welcome to today's episode of Fixing Healthcare. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. This season focuses on leadership. Our guest today is Dan Ariely an Israeli-American professor and author of numerous books on psychology and behavioral economics. He serves as the James B. Duke Professor at Duke University. Listeners enjoyed the approach we took with Dr. Bergelman, in which after the interview was completed, we spliced in Robbie's thoughts on how academic research could be applied to medicine today. Let's plan to do the same based on Dr. Ariely's work. Hi, Dan, and welcome to Fixing Healthcare. Uh, Lovely to be here. Before we discuss your new book, which focuses on COVID-19 and the misbeliefs that the pandemic produced, which harmed hundreds of thousands of Americans as a result, I'd like to set the stage for listeners by giving them a sense of some of your previous research. In your first book, Predictably Irrational, The Hidden Forces That Shape Our Decisions, you pointed out errors that people make particularly around financial decisions. Can you give listeners an example? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where do we start? Uh, but but uh, one, one example perhaps is what is called anchoring. And anchoring is the idea that we use our prior decisions as an input for later decisions. Uh, so let's say, for example, uh, you go to buy a car. You're not looking at cars from the beginning you look at what did I pay last time for cars? Or you go to buy a house, (laughs) you're not looking at the cost and benefits of different houses, you look at the sticker price, the the price that people are are asking. So that's that's one example. Another example is that uh, we get attached to things. You know, once, once we have something, whether it's a sofa or a service or we we start getting used to it and we view the world from the perspective of wanting to keep it rather than losing it. So, for example, we show that when it comes to Duke basketball tickets, but of course it's true for lots of things, people that have a ticket think tickets are amazing and they don't want to give them up. Uh, people who don't have tickets don't think that they are so valuable, they're not willing to pay uh, much for them. And, and if you think about the basic principle is that we don't have an evolutionary mechanism to deal with something as complex as money. So we use all kinds of other brain mechanisms to deal with it, and which is, you know, helps us deal with it, but not in perfect ways. In healthcare, change comes very slowly. It's been said that it takes 17 years for a great idea to become common practice. Does this bias impact that and potentially contribute to it? So, so you know, in healthcare, there's a, there's a ton of, there's ton of uh, misguided ideas. But, you know, in healthcare, there's a question of whether you're thinking about the side 
that produces healthcare or the side that consumes healthcare? So on the side that consumes healthcare, of course, there are many, many problems, right? Uh, people don't take their medication on time. We overeat. Uh, you know, all of us, right? Over us, all of us uh, text and drive, overeat, uh, don't sleep enough. Uh, you, you name it. Don't take a medication on time. And then on the producer side, uh, the mistakes are often that uh, people don't understand uh, what's actually driving uh, people. I'll give you one, one example. Uh, we recently created a scale with no display. And uh, we showed that the scale with no display actually helps people measure themselves uh, more frequently. Why? Because it turns that the numbers that we get from the scale are very frightening. Uh, the numbers fluctuate a lot, right? There's a huge daily variance. And the numbers are delayed in uh, when, when we start a diet, the numbers don't start improving until maybe eight or 10 days afterward. And, and it's a very frustrating, unpleasant experience. So people stop weighing themselves. And if we create a scale with no display and just give people the trend over the last three weeks, people are actually improve their health to a higher degree. Uh, by the way, another thing we found with this scale is that we have to celebrate nothing bad happens. Why? Because in health, actually, most of life is about nothing bad happens. Imagine, imagine somebody that over a year loses weight 12 weeks of the year and nothing happened for 40 weeks of the year. Is that a good year or a bad year? Health-wise, it's an amazing year, probably like a three-sigma year, almost never happened. But unless that person categorized nothing bad happened as good news, they would think that they've failed most of the time. So if you take the perspective of the individual and you say the individual is not a perfect data combining machine, the individual uh, needs to get motivated. By, by the way, with, with health, it, it's kind of amazing when you think about it, but our main message to patients is this is going to be difficult and painful and unpleasant, but you still have to do it. That's just, that's just not a good approach to almost anything in life. Uh, you know, we, we're not trying to make it uh, interesting, uh, pleasurable. Um, we don't try to get people to feel that they're winning. Um, we, we've kind of taken motivation out of the picture and say people should be motivated about their long-term health without, without really focusing on how difficult this is and trying to help people become more interested and motivated in their health. Rabbi, how do you view the application of these concepts to patient care? Jeremy, I really like his advice on shifting from the negative to the positive. Let's take something like diabetes and its impact on our health. Doctors could focus on the known risks, including dying of a heart attack, having to go on dialysis, and requiring amputation of your leg. They are all terrible. And you might think they would scare patients into doing a better job of losing weight, taking their medications, and exercising. But as you know, that approach hasn't been successful. Given what Dan said, I wonder if shifting the lens from the problematic to the positive might not be better. What would happen if the lifestyle medicine changes were put into the context of an opportunity to see your children and grandchildren graduate or to watch them get married? Or what if it were explained as a path to having a better sex life? I don't know if it would work, but I think it's worth a try.
in your second book, The Upside of Irrationality, you expand what you wrote in the first book to focus on the benefits of defying logic in the workplace and at home. Can you give some examples of this evolution in your thinking and your research? Yeah, so, so, so first of all, I didn't want people to think about irrationality equals bad. Uh, irrationality is all kind of things that are outside of the economic framework. So it's about um, helping other people. It's about falling in love. Uh, you know, you, we don't want a world without those things. So, so in that in that book, I talk some about dating and some about uh, motivation in the workplace, about the things that actually drive us, the irrational things that drive us. So, just to give an example from the workplace, we find that one of the the best uh, drivers of of motivation in the workplace is feeling appreciated. Now, now think about this. Um, think about all the people that you work with. Think about the people who help us out. How often do we say thank you? Um, it turns out that everybody loves being appreciated, but but we don't do it enough. Uh, doing it uh, makes a big makes a big difference. Uh, it also turns out that bureaucracy is one of the killers of uh, human motivation. And of course, when you think about the healthcare system, uh, it's very obvious that for all kinds of reasons, uh, we're doing on the bureaucracy side, we're doing lots of things that is killing motivation. As you know, burnout is a major challenge in healthcare today. 60% of physicians report being burned out. And I wonder, based upon what you just said, how much of that is, I'll say, financial or some other type of objective measure, and how much of that might be just simply not feeling appreciated and feeling like you're caught in a bureaucratic nightmare. Yeah, so so this also connects us to the, the new book, Misbelief, but I would say that there are two kinds of, of uh, pieces of stress. And one is predictable stress and one is unpredictable stress. So predictable stress could be, way I'm, I'm too busy. Uh, unpredictable stress is saying, I don't understand the world. I don't understand why this is, why this is working. And I think that physicians have both types of stress. Yeah. I recently, not so recently, a while ago, I talked to a physician who, who said to me that I don't understand how lucky I am because I can take a bathroom break wherever I want. And he said that he has like, you know, let's say 12 minutes per patient. When he thinks about the bathroom break, he has to think about which patient can take um, a three-minute reduction of their time or whether it will be delaying everything and so on. Um, so, so I think physicians have uh, lots, lots of stress, and they also live in a world in which the world doesn't make sense. On, on one hand, we tell physicians, you are here to save people and improve their health. And on the other hand, we don't trust them to do the things that they think they should be, they should be doing. So, you know, if, if a physician, I think that a physician that uh, writes a prescription for a patient for a medication, uh, and then it's getting rejected, that's not just a rejection from a financial perspective. It's basically saying to the physician, you thought that this is the right course of action, and we're not accepting it. And just think about how does that how does that influence somebody? So now they say, okay, so how is the world working? Am I not the physician? Am I not the person who is uh, responsible for the health of the of the person? And how did it happen that it was rejected? And by the way, I'm sure 
Sometimes it's rejected, sometimes it's not. It's it's not easy to find out, figure out, you know, uh, at what uh, what side of the bed the person in, in in the insurance company woke up and how they make a make decision. So, and and physicians, of course, have tremendous burnout and also suicide rates. Um, and now, when you think about what's the inoculation for stress, a lot of the inoculation for stress is resilience. So, you know, what, what gets all of us being able to deal with, with stress? So you could say if you, if you have a romantic partner who uh, loves you in a very deep way, that really helps deal with things. When you have friends who are helping deal with things, when you have people who appreciate you. So the, the notion of resilience is, is very important. So when, when they feel stress, where, whether it's like the predictable stress or the unpredictable stress, we also have to think about what kind of mental energy they have to deal with it, what kind of uh, feeling of appreciation uh, they have. And, and physicians, I think, are actually everybody in the healthcare system are some of the most uh, generous people in terms of their time and mission, uh, in terms of what they give to the world. Um, but, but I don't think they get to feel it because the environment is not uh, an environment that supports that supports feedback. I also think it's probably even worse for pharma. Uh, imagine, imagine a plot that says value to the world per dollar. Let, let's say that's on, uh, on the y-axis. On the x-axis, you have reputation. Uh, so you tell me, where do you think pharma falls on the value for the world per dollar spent? I think it's pretty controversial i think there are, there are areas in which the value is tremendous actual breakthrough drugs but i also think there are a lot of them that are just simply slightly different maybe a tiny bit better than what came before at tremendously higher price and that has led to some erosion of the value accorded to the pharmaceutical industry that's right but but i think i think we would agree that you know, if you compare it to other industries, it's relatively high. You wouldn't say it's the maybe everything that the industry is providing, but if you if you thought about that, you would say per dollar spent, um, you know, it, it's probably higher than 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 most. Um, and then if you look on the other axis on reputation, <laughs> you already talked about that. Where where does it fall in reputation? Lately, it's been down. Yes, absolutely. Congress is looking at this as we speak today. And, and, and now ask yourself the question of how did it happen? And how do we want people to join uh, those companies and provide innovation? I had a friend from uh, somebody I know from, from a pharmaceutical company that said that whenever they meet people on the political left, they don't tell them where they left, when they work. What what does this do to the motivation of people to like imagine a, a new PhD chemistry biology um, student? How much do they want to go to this industry and create tremendous innovation that could help all of us? So I think I think there's a lot of things that we have done to uh, sadly eat at the reputation and the motivation of the of, of all, all healthcare workers. 
Rabbi, what are your thoughts on what Dan said about irrationality? Jeremy, I love how Dan explains irrationality as a positive force. He mentioned appreciation and how important it can be. I previously pointed out the truism that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. One way leaders communicate how much they care is by expressing their gratitude for the hard work people do. Jeremy, I can remember times where we gave out bonuses and two weeks later, they were forgotten. But I also can remember sending a letter to a physician who did a great job caring for a complex patient. A few months later, I went to his office to ask a question on a different topic. And there I saw my letter framed and hanging on the wall. It provided recognition and motivation to this physician for the rest of his career. That leads to your third book uh, about the honest truth about dishonesty, how we lie to everyone, especially ourselves. I think you described these deceptions well. Uh, I think you present what could be a very threatening type of book and title in a very uh, balanced way. Can you give an example of what you found to be most interesting in the research on this topic? Yeah, so maybe I'll describe a, one, one simple uh, study. So uh, I used to own a vending machine. And one day I set up this, no, one week, I set up this vending machine to say 75 cents on the price. Uh, but inside I set the machine to a price of zero. So that means that if somebody puts money, they get all of their money back because everything is more than zero. And I have a big sign that says, if something is wrong in the machine, please call this number. Okay, so the first question was, how many people would call? And the answer is zero. Uh, and then the second question was, how many candies would people take? And it turns out that people took a few candies, three or four, but nobody took five. And, and the basic idea is that we cheat up to the level that we can rationalize it. So in the vending machine case, people say to themselves, I remember another vending machine that took my money and didn't give me a candy. And this other vending machine uh, is a close relative of this vending machine and I'm just balancing my, my vending karma. So we're able to rationalize bad behaviors, but, but we can't rationalize them fully. We rationalize them only to a certain degree. So the outcome of this is we can cheat a little bit and still feel good about ourselves. And, and that happens in, a, in, in almost, almost every area of our life. In your research, did you find, well, what did the, re, what did the distribution look like? Uh, were there major numbers of outliers at both ends? Was it a normal bell-shaped type curve? What did it look like as you looked at the data on the number of candy bars that people took? Yeah, so, so the, the most common number was, was three and four. Nobody took five. Uh, but but more people took three and four than took one or two. So so it basically says like um, you know people feel like fine to exaggerate a little bit but not too much. Like think about uh, people who go online dating and they might be willing to be a year younger but not five years younger. They might be willing to shave two or three pounds but not uh, but not ten. So, so those are the kind of things that we're finding. We're finding that uh, most people are okay with cheating a little bit, but not more than that. So it's, a, it's good news because people don't cheat a lot. It's bad news because lots of people are cheating a little. And of course, 
everything that changes rationalization um, changes willingness to be, be dishonest. For example, if you can say everybody is doing it, that gets people. Or if you can say nobody's really going to suffer uh, because of this, or uh, they did it to me last time. So everything that, that gets people to rationalize also get them to be willing to cheat a little bit more and, and they're able to feel better with themselves at the same time. Robbie, much of what Dan said about dishonesty was disturbing. How does it impact medicine? Jeremy, doctors are exceptionally smart and incredibly hardworking. However, when it comes to these types of psychological shortcomings, they're no different than anyone else. What Dan is describing is a shift in perspective that allows people to act in ways that are problematic, but justified by, by what many would call rationalization. An example in healthcare is the so-called out-of-network billing. Prior to Congress outlawing it, ED doctors often would refuse to sign contracts with insurance companies, knowing that ambulances would still bring them patients. By not agreeing to a specific contracted rate for patient care, they could charge whatever they wanted. They justified doing so by making the insurance company the villain. And of course, often insurance companies are quite problematic, but the approach ignored the reality that through the actions of not signing contracts and billing fees that were much higher, they were putting the patient in the middle and often sending individuals who had no choice but to come for care to collection. Added network billing has been a major reason why healthcare is the number one cause of bankruptcy for Americans. And pretending that this approach is in the interest of excellent medical care, I think that's just dishonest. In your newest book, Misbelief, you select another provocative title. For listeners, can you define what you mean by misbelief? Yeah, so so maybe maybe I'll say that I did not pick that topic. I was propelled into it. Um, during COVID, I, I helped a lot of people and a lot of governments with all kinds of questions that were COVID related. And one day, and one day I get uh, an email that says, Dan, what happened? What's what's wrong with you? How did you change this way? And I, I shoot a quick email. I said, what, what happened? And I get a long list of links, and I'll just describe one of them. Uh, that one link uh, describes how I was uh, badly burned, 70% uh, of my body, and I spent almost three years in hospital. That's true. And then the video goes to describe how because of that, I started hating healthy people. And that's why I joined the cabal, Bill Gates, the Illuminati, to try and kill as many healthy people as possible. Uh, not true, in case you're wondering. Um, and and I had a period where I tried to explain myself to, to those misbelievers, and then I failed miserably, as expected. Um, not, <laughs> I didn't expect it, but now I can, I can see why. And then I spent the next two years trying to understand uh, this, this machinery that takes people and changes them over time. So think about the people that you know, and think whether there's somebody in your in your circle that, that five years ago, you thought that you have the same worldview. 
And now you look at them and you say, I don't understand how the two of us are watching the same universe and coming to such different conclusions. And misbelief has two elements. The first element is that people believe in something that we don't believe, that something that is the experts don't believe, the majority of people don't believe that it's not real. But the second part, which is incredibly important, is that it's not just a, a little belief. It's a central belief in their life. Some of their identity is based on that. And it's used as a lens to view everything else. So if you think about the people, for example, who thought that COVID was what they call the pandemic, it wasn't just a regular skepticism. Say, oh, I'm not sure if COVID is such a big deal or it's just a, a minor uh, uh, illness. It's it's not a skepticism. It's 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 certainty. COVID is, uh, you know, hundred uh, percent this this pandemic. And not only that, but it's a it's a lens from which they view everything. And they say we don't trust doctors, and we don't trust pharma, and we don't trust government, and we therefore don't trust the World Health Organization. And 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 then it goes it goes on and becoming worse and worse. In your book, you talk about how emotional stress contributes to misbelief. Uh, can you explain what you mean by that and give some of the examples and some of the research? Sure. So, so there are kind of four elements to this funnel of misbelief. Stress, cognition, personality, and social. And, and stress is kind of the, the base. It's, it's the... It's the conditions under which misbeliefs can start and can flourish. Without it, we don't have a problem. So that's kind of the necessary uh, condition to, to start down the path of misbelief. And, and the idea, again, is we said um, there's two kinds of trust, one predictable trust and unpredictable trust. We're talking about the unpredictable trust, not the one that says I'm too busy. It's the, it's the kind, of trust, a kind of stress that says, I don't understand where the world is going. I don't understand why I don't have a better share. I don't understand why this is happening like this. So we have we have stress that is unpredictable. And what that creates is a desire for a story. So what, what do I mean by that? When you think, for example, about fishermen, uh, fishermen who, who fish in the deep sea versus one who uh, fish in a lake, the ones who fish in the sea have more unpredictable results. Now, very hard to deal with unpredictable results. What do they do? They adapt more superstitions. Or another example, if you show people a, a picture made of white, black, and gray dots, and you say, do you see, a pic you, you see images in this random set? The more stressed people are, the more they are likely to see uh, to see images, including people who are about to jump from a plane, parachuting. So, so stress creates a desire to understand the world. That's that's kind of part one. Part two is that the story that people want is not just a random story, but they want a story with a villain. Why why do people want a story with a villain? Because they want to deflect blame. Something is not working out. Something is not great. I don't want to feel that it's my responsibility. I want to find the villain for the story. And then the final element is that they want a story with the villain 
but they also want a complex story. Where's this desire for a complex story starts from? You could say, usually people want simple stories. Like, look what's on, on you know, television. Look at what we want, simple stories. Why do we want a complex story? It's because when people feel like they're underdogs, feeling that they actually understand something that the rest of us don't gives them the perception of power. So people say something like, you think I don't understand the world. In fact, I understand it much better than you. There is, you know, a cabal that is doing all of these things and then having all kinds of, of connections. So, so what happened is that the stress creates all of these needs. And this is actually a very important point, you know, because we, we look at the, some of these beliefs and we say, why do people adopt them? And the reality is they adopt them for a reason. They actually, these, these misbeliefs are actually answering a real need. The real need is a real for a story with a villain and a complex story and so on. And it just basically plugs into the, the human psychology to fulfill this need. And of course, then things get worse, right? Because once you get exposed to this uh, story, now uh, the, the nature of the internet and the nature of the way that uh, whatever platform you use get more and more stories and expands the cognitive framework and how people understand it. And, and now it could become not just a, a momentary response to a need, but it can become a slippery slope that gets worse and worse. As I listen to you describe it, I'm thinking that in medicine today, as I talk to clinicians, there's a lot of, I'll call it victim mentality, a certain amount of learned helplessness that you describe in the book. Um, they have lack, lack of control, unpredictability of rejection, they have a story that comes out about that. Is there a way that that can be positive or is that um, a major journey down a road towards uh, misbelief that yeah. actually makes the problem worse, not better over time? I, I have not seen a positive thing that comes out of it. Um, you know, I think I think that it's something that um, people need to fight. And, and the reason I use the, the term the funnel of misbelief is that it's very important to realize that it's easier to get out in the early stages and more difficult to get out of it later on. So by the time that people get to the social element in which uh, most of their friends and their social identity and so on is tied to the misbelief, that's very, very hard to create. That's very hard to reverse, right? So, but but if I think about, um, you know, kind of stressed, hard done by forces that we don't understand, uh, the existence of a potential uh, villain, uh, that that's a really bad recipe. It's a really bad recipe, and and I can easily see how uh, that. That story about the villain and the complexity is is going to become worse, worse and worse. Like um, you know, think about the the opioid epidemic. Um, you know, I've 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 read a couple. Uh, uh, I'm sure I'm sure you're on top of that much more than I am. I've I've read one book. I saw one of the the TV shows, and you know, clearly a very complex. Clearly, a very complex story. 
and um, very, very sad, very, very sad. Um, but but as a patient, you know, I was I was uh, three years in in hospital, very severe burns. Um, I'm also incredibly grateful for for opioids. I'm, I'm grateful I didn't get addicted, but um, you know, it, for me the, the story is much more complex than than what has been portrayed, and I feel that nobody has given my side of the story that said. I don't know what I would have done without opioids. Rabbi, the idea of misbelief coming from stress and seeking a villain can be seen in every part of society. What about medicine? Jeremy, I believe it is just as prevalent in medicine as in other industries. It's hard to think of an occupation that is more stressful than being responsible for people's lives on a daily basis. And the stresses have grown far greater over the past decade as cost pressures have mounted. And as Dan notes, the response hasn't been healthy. Burnout has soared and finger pointing is a daily exercise. Rather than doctors figuring out who to blame, and of course there are lots of targets, I encourage them to put in place solutions, specifically by shifting from a reimbursement system which pays physicians based on fee-for-service and rewards volume to one that involves prepayment and rewards superior clinical outcomes, I think the external pressure can be minimized and often avoided. Capitation pays clinicians a set payment to provide medical care to a population of patients, and it holds the doctors accountable for quality and patient satisfaction. Once a medical group is capitated, There's no need to bill an insurance company every time they see a patient, and there's no prior authorization process to complete. Physicians have control over the care provided without outside interference. I think moving from fee-for-service to capitation can help relieve the day-to-day stress and obviate the need for an external villain. I think that leads on to your second point, which is the cognitive errors. How do they contribute to the funnel of misbelief? So, so the cognitive errors have multiple parts for it, right? We, we usually think that people are rational information processing machines, but of course, people are not. People have kind of lots of different mistakes. Uh, one of them is that we don't look at all the information. We only look at the information that will confirm what we believe. Example, depending on where you are on the political spectrum, you would look at only information that supports your view. The second one is that we're able to bend information to our will. You know, if, you're, uh, if you don't like a piece of information, you're able to read it in a way that would support your initial opinion, discount whatever you don't like and emphasize what you like. And, and another important component is people have this superficial understanding and very high confidence. And and this is sometimes called the illusion of explanatory depth. And uh, for example, imagine the following experiment. I come to people and I say, do you understand how a flush toilet works? And people say, yes. On the scale, top, I really understand it well. And then I say to people and, Luckily for you, I have all the pieces here of a flush toilet. Can you please assemble one? And people try and try, and nobody can ever assemble. 
And then I go back and I say, how well do you think you understand it now? And people say, I don't understand it well at all. And if you think about the principle there, the principle is that people have a very high belief in their knowledge, unsupported and dramatic overconfidence. And I'm guessing that, you know, you can, you, everybody has that, right? But doctors probably think that patients have it. Um, uh, some people, scientists probably think that doctors have it, but it's about, it's about the fact that we don't understand the nuances of the things we're dealing with uh, very often. But the good news is that when we're forced to explain something in a deep way, like if you try to convince me of something and you come with the opposite opinion, I will most likely argue with you. But if you don't come from the other perspective, you say, I'm taking your view, just help me understand your view in more nuances, then, then we find that people are um, admitting their lack of knowledge and, and uh, reduce their overconfidence. It sounds as though the social factors are going to be major contributors to misbelief. What did your research show on that aspect? Yeah, the, the social part is an incredibly important part, incredibly important. And, and there's, there's a couple of elements there. And the first one that we have to understand is ostracism. So I don't know about you, but I have certainly been guilty of that where people in my environment have started exploring misbeliefs, started doubting all kinds of things that I thought they should be not doubting. And rather than having empathy and understanding them and helping them, I, I made a little bit fun of them. But of course, I thought it was a little bit fun and they thought it was a big fun and um, they, they got rejected. And, and when people feel ostracized, um, it's a terrible feeling. It, it, it affects quality of life and optimism. It, it, it changes willingness to volunteer and donation and uh, all kinds of things. And, and now people need to find support group. And where do they go? They find online some group of people who believe just like them. So they find it. That's first step number one. And then they want to show themselves in that group. Uh, maybe say something interesting, get a reaction, uh, get feeling of support. And, and the way to do it is to say something extreme. Maybe even something that they don't fully believe in, but it's, it's extreme. Um, and they say something extreme and people react positively to them. And, and then they uh, keep on saying those things and other people start saying those things. So, so we start with ostracism. We get people to find their niche group, and then they become more and more extreme. And, and maybe the last part of the, the social component is what we call cognitive dissonance. And everybody heard the term, but, but the basic idea of cognitive dissonance is that we usually think that our preferences drive our actions. Uh, I believe in X, therefore I act in a way that... that supports X, but it also goes the other way, which is once people put a lot of effort into something, it changes their beliefs. And what that means is that if people spend a lot of time online and demonstrate or, or write something or whatever, 
their beliefs change in that in that direction. And and of course, once people spend you know some time in the the world of misbelief, um, spending some time reading, posting, uh, sharing, um, you know maybe maybe even taking some actions like buying some uh, whatever zinc. Um, uh, all of a sudden, they they change their beliefs to fit with that with that direction. So so that's that's how people get started with being ostracism and finding support. How they become more extreme by saying things that are more extreme, and then once they have a lot of actions invested in it, now it's very very hard to get them back. When I look across society, I see more tribalism maybe than at any point in America's history since the Civil War. Do you see this as being a outcome of social media or there are other factors you think are playing a big role today? Yeah, I think, I think it's, so certainly social media is playing a role, but I think it's not just social media. I think it's, um, you know, so think about the cookie as a metaphor. The cookie is fat, sugar, and salt in some combination that attacks our senses in, kind of the optimal way to get us to consume cookies, right? You would say to, to eat the first one and then to continue eating them, right? We've created a system that basically creates an optimal attack on our, take advantage of our sensory experience in order to, to achieve a different goal, basically getting to sell cookies to us. In the same way, I think that the funnel of misbelief has lots of different elements. Right. We, we mentioned resilience. We are at a very low point in resilience. Um, you know, social support is very low. Uh, income inequality uh, reduces resilience. As income inequality, even at the neighborhood, increases, people are less likely to ask their friends, their neighbors, for help. Uh, we have tremendous stress. Uh, COVID was, uh, <laughs> you know, unprecedented in terms of stress, but even without COVID. And there is stress. And the cognitive mechanisms allow us with, with media in general, not just social media, to consume whatever we want. We can consume, you know, uh, Alex Jones, we can consume CNN, we can consume Fox News, the, the, the options are, uh, are all out there. And then, and then of course, the, the social part uh, is, is also uh, incredibly powerful, and all of this is leading to um, a very, very undesirable uh, approach. Where now a lot of things are not about the facts; uh, they're about tribalism. So you know, when you when you ask people, for example, um, what do you think the level of inequality in the U.S. should be? Right, which is basically you know what kind of uh, taxes we want and what kind of educational system we want. But you ask people in abstract, what is an acceptable level of inequality that you would want to have in the U.S.? The differences between Republicans and Democrats are are tiny when you ask it in an abstract way. But when you ask people to to say their opinion as it relates to their party, they they have this unbelievable loyalty. It, it's as if it's a different thinking process. It's not about uh, what are your thoughts about welfare and uh, 
socialized medicine and what do you think about uh, retirement and what do you think about investment in infrastructure and what do you think about the role of the government it, it's almost like it's a two separate topics when you talk about these things separately uh, people agree to a much higher degree and when you say oh this is democrats versus republican people say oh, i'm perfectly loyal uh, to my uh, to my party it's, it's as if as if it as if politics, I mean, politics has changed to being religion in that regard. It's all of a sudden not a question of how do we solve our big challenges as move forward. It's about what's my identity. And I'm going to say whatever is connected to identity, not connected at all to what is the way in which we think problems should be approached. Robbie, these cognitive and social contributors to the funnel of misbelief can be seen across society. How do they impact medicine? Jeremy, this is such an important part of Dan's model. Ostracism leads to tribalization with group belief proving erroneous. I think in healthcare, the opposite of that process is possible through high-performing teams. Bring people from disparate specialties and clinical training together and then help them bond, focus on systemness and teamwork for the benefit of patients, connect everyone so that patients don't fall through the cracks and the clinical outcomes will be better and fewer medical errors will occur. As a profession, we tend to focus on the excellence of individuals. And that is an important factor, but research shows that how teams perform has an even greater impact on whether patients do well, or whether they suffer complications. And that leads to the last part, which is that of the individual, the personality. How does that impact uh, misbelief? Yeah. So first of all, I, I want to uh, make it clear that uh, personality is not deterministic. It's not as if you have one personality, you're destined to be a misbeliever, and if you have another one, you're immune. Personality uh, some types of personality get to go down the funnel of misbelief a little faster and some a little slower, but but it's not uh, not everything relies on that. It's not like stress. Stress is a a necessary condition. Personality just you know uh, lubricates it further for some people and, and less for others. And and there's a few elements of the personality, but but the way to think about it quickly is to think about this stress. And we say, if stress is the initial conditions, and then people come up with a story, what would get some people to adopt a story faster? What would get some people to adopt a story slower? And what gets people to be more likely to want to find a story, and some people to find less likely? So, for example, there's a little math problem. And the math problem goes like this. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. A baseball bat and a baseball ball cost together a dollar ten. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. And the question is, how much does the ball cost? And when people get this question, the first answer that comes to mind is 10 cents. But then some people say it, they say, oh, 10 cents. And some people don't say it and they test themselves. They said, well, if the ball was 10 cents, then the bat would be a dollar ten, a dollar more. And together, that's a dollar twenty. Ten cents plus a dollar ten is a dollar twenty. But Dan said that together they 
they cost a dollar ten, so that doesn't work. I need to cut ten cents off. I'll cut five cents from the ball and five cents from the from the bat, so it will be five cents and a dollar five. Five cents and a dollar five. It's a dollar difference, uh, and together they make a dollar ten. Okay, so this is simple math. No, everybody can do it, but it turns out that the people who say the answer that comes to their mind, ten cents are more likely to go to the down the path of misbelief. And the people who test themselves are less likely. Now, what is this personality trait? Is whether when something feels right to you, you say, yes, that's the answer, or whether you test yourself and make sure that you actually are, uh, are correct. So that's one, um, one example. In medicine, the importance of intuition against science is often debated. How does your research try to answer that question? So, so this is not my research, but I would say that my field in general uh, believes that intuition is rarely a good approach. And, and the reason, so let, let's think about what intuition is. So you could say an intuition is when we have a, a brain mechanism for something. So when we see a snake, we're all afraid of that snake, right? There's a brain mechanism that detects snakes. It's even stronger for birds. But, but we don't have to think about snakes. We don't do a cost and benefit. We, don't, we just see the movement of that type of movement. And we intuitively say, this is dangerous. Let's go away from it. That's one type of intuition. Another type of intuition is for something where we have a lot of experience with. Um, I'm, I don't play chess, but let's say uh, somebody played chess for uh, many, many years, they develop an intuition. They see the board, they don't have to think about which, they have a sense of where this is going. Is it a good or bad uh, for uh, board for the white and for the black uh, player? But that comes with lots of experience. The challenge, of course, is what happens in things that don't have a biological mechanism and something we don't have a lot of experience with. So houses, how many times have we bought a house? Uh, marriage, how many times do we get married? All of those things are, we don't have a good biological mechanism for, and we certainly don't have enough experience for. It's not the, you know, thousands and many, many thousands of hours that, that experts play. And, and so if you ask me about medicine, I think that there are cases where probably um, healthcare workers have been able to develop good, good intuition. Those would be cases in which they saw lots of cases, different cases, and got feedback. Right? If I'm just a, a, a doctor and I diagnose things, but I never know what happened to my patients, did I diagnose correctly or not, I would not be able to develop good intuition. But if I diagnose something and I get feedback uh, over the years, I think that, that people could develop a good intuition. But we would want lots of experience, different experience with good feedback. And under those conditions, I think intuition can develop. But I think if you think about it this way, um, there's just not a lot of room for those. Mostly it's not those. Robbie, you have often described the failures of intuition in medicine. What do you think of what Dan said? Jeremy, I believe 
he made a crucial point that often is overlooked. And that is that intuition requires not only experience, but also feedback and analysis of outcomes. And that is where in medicine, it often is overlooked and fails. You can do the same thing 20 times and learn nothing more than if you did it once, or you can improve 20 consecutive times. And you need to be cognizant of behavioral economic biases. Let's say an expected complication rate from a medication or a procedure is 10%. That means that one in 10 people will experience it. If the last patient you saw had this complication, the research says that you will be less likely to recommend it to the next patient compared to if the last five people you saw didn't have that complication. But what science demonstrates is that the, the differences between the last patient having the problem and five people not having it, that's just chance. Statistically, over time, the risk for the next patient will be 10%, regardless of who you've recently treated. But that is not how the human brain performs. And that is not how intuition works. I believe it's far better to follow the science in your brain than to try to adhere to your gut. At the end of your book, you talk about trust and the danger of losing it. How does this all relate to misbelief? Yeah, so, you know, we said that misbelief is about a belief in something in the world, but it's also an internal state. And the moment misbelief becomes an internal state, it means that people become suspicious of everything. So I was on some radio show last week, and after that radio show, somebody uh, wrote me about some salmonella outbreak. And he asked me, what do I think? How did it happen? And I said, you know, I think, I think there was probably a mistake. I don't know exactly what the mistake was, but somebody made a mistake, and, and let's hope they'll investigate and figure out how to not repeat that mistake. And, and that guy who was a misbeliever uh, didn't buy that, my approach. He was certain that this was intentional. He talked about the particular uh, com, um, ideological composition of the place where the um, salmonella effect uh, broke, and he and he has an intention uh, in his story to that. When people when people start looking at the world as people are trying to hurt me, everything is for a reason. Um, mistakes are not stupid; they are they are um, for a purpose. Now, now you start mistrusting more and more. And you say to yourself, well, I don't, I think the earth is flat, but I think NASA is on top of that and the government and all the pilots and uh, they're part of something. And now and I also think that everything the government does and, and it's also that they're not taking care of um, food and they're using money in a particular way. And, and society runs on trust. Trust is kind of the unobserved lubricant of society. We, we trust the mail to be delivered. We trust that the elevator is going to be well-maintained. We trust that the food supply is going to be um, 
at least attempted to be uh, without flaws. We trusted our cars. Uh, the brakes would work. Uh, we needed like we have we have a tremendous amount of, of of trust. And once once this is, we start questioning everything. Very hard to get people to act. Now just just think to yourself. Imagine that next week we had COVID twenty twenty three, COVID twenty three. How are we set up for that? What is the ability, not just the U.S., what's the ability of the world uh, to deal with this? I think we're starting from a worse position than we were uh, in, in COVID-19. I think we have less trust, um, and, and it, it's, I'm, I'm hoping it doesn't happen, uh, but, but certainly, certainly uh, the amount of trust that we would need uh, uh, the amount of trust has gone down, and uh, it will be much, much harder to deal with this. And it's true for every everything that we have to face as a country. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Dan. I can't wait to have you back a future time to talk about your next piece of research and work, for I'm sure it will be another insight into a very controversial and difficult area of the world, medicine, and our lives. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.